Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who have discovered that there is no merit, there is no righteousness, there's not enough good deeds added up from all of us that could ever earn your favor, that would ever merit us a place in your presence. All that we think is good is tainted. It's tainted by our own sense of self-importance. It's tainted by our own poor motive. And so we have discovered that there's nothing. There is nothing. There is absolutely nothing that can atone for sin except the finished work of Jesus Christ. The one who spilled his blood at Calvary. It is he on whom we depend. It is he on whom we we rely. He is our only sense of merit to lay claim by faith to that grand and glorious finished work of Jesus's. So we sing the truth. We believe that truth. There's nothing. There's nothing we have, nothing we own, nothing that we've ever done that will ever write us before you. It is only the grand and glorious finished work of our sin-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Father, we, um, we need to be here more than we know. We are, we are tempted, we are tried, we are sucked into a world system that uh, tries to convince us that every need that we have can be met as long as we work hard enough and try hard enough and do good enough. And for many, we have discovered what a lie that is. And we ask, O oh God, that while we're here, you'll remind us of everlasting eternal truths so that we can adjust our lives and our priorities, even our schedules, so that we can cast an eye towards the great eternal truths that are to be found in your word. Our Father, we continue to pray for our world. It seems to get scarier and scarier with the passing of each week. Now we've got people burning down buildings because uh, a liberty was abused. Father, we Christians know what it means to have our Savior um, vilified and spoken evil about. And yet, we, uh, we trust not in the media. We trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to convert. And so, Lord, might this church be involved with hundreds and thousands of others around the world to establish and proclaim the beauties of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours to give every dime of this, O oh God. Guard it. Might it be used and, and maximized for the upbuilding and expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them once again to the book of Genesis, and we'll resume our study of the life of Jacob. Genesis chapter 25, while I dry off up here. Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 27. You follow in your copies as I read you through the end of chapter 25. Here we go. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, 
Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Gang, you may recall last week in the passage right above the one I just read about when these two twins were born and this whole heel-grabbing incident that's recorded for you in verse 26, that whole heel-grabbing thing, as I said last week, became an idiom. It, it, it became a title for a certain kind of people, people who were um, hustlers, uh, kind of a... I've read where Jacob was called the riverboat gambler of the Old Testament. He was a schemer. He was a plotter. He was a heel-grasper. Well, that whole um, heel-grasping thing becomes, becomes somewhat of a symbol of the future relationship that Jacob is going to have with Esau. Our text that begins in verse 27 kind of fast-forwards us from the birth event to the first adult confrontation between these two brothers. Uh, this first heel-grasping event it begins is recorded for us in verses 27 and following. I, I'm sure they had numerous childhood conflicts, which Esau probably won all of them. But we're, we're not told uh, exactly how old they were in verses 27 and following. But we do know that in Judaism, uh, a young man was considered adult at age 13. So I'm suggesting, I'm, I'm guessing that their age is somewhere in their mid-teens. 15, 16, 17, something like that. You know, in this story that I just read you, it's, it's hard to identify only one villain because um, all of them are bad. Now, this is a series about Jacob, and we'll get to Jacob before the, the uh, 30 minutes is up. But all four adults in this story are, are, are not people that you exactly want to invite to your Super Bowl party. These people are, are really not acting very nice. For instance, take Dad. You know, that his name is Isaac, of course. Uh, Dad has already made it very clear that he's got a favorite. He makes no bones about it. He doesn't try to keep it a secret. He doesn't try to hide his meanness. Oh, no. He's got a favorite. Uh, and, of course, Esau's his favorite. Um, because Esau was a... You know, he was kind of an outdoor sportsman kind of guy, kind of a rugged, uh, uh, hard-nosed kind of type. You know, he read Sports Illustrated, and he smelled like a locker room. And so Daddy kind of liked him. And then we're told, actually, in verse 28, that uh, Isaac loved Esau because. And the, the Hebrew in that, in that rest of that sentence is really interesting. He is... Um, uh, the Hebrew literally is, uh, he loved Esau because he put game in his mouth. Or venison or savory meat, whatever your translation. He loved him because he put game in his mouth. Oh, gosh. Daddy, uh, 
he kind of liked to eat and drink and watch football. And uh, Esau provided him the food for his his football watching. So I kind of like that brawny one, you know, Esau. Yeah, he's my favorite. And then there's Mama, Rebecca. Mama has a favorite too, we're told. We're not told the reason why she chooses Jacob. Maybe it's in response to her husband having chosen the other one. I, I, I don't know. But um, Rebecca, and I'm going to have to save some of this information for the next time we meet over this text. Uh, but Rebecca will stop at nothing. She's a strong woman, a classic manipulator. The point is, guys, this whole family needs therapy. They, they need to put in a call to Nanny 911 and, and send these two boys to Brett Camp. This is, this is a wreck of a home. They, they all kind of illustrate um, what God got when he got us. He got, a, he got a bunch of dysfunctional misfits. Guys, surely, surely as parents we don't show favoritism among our kids, do we? As a dad, do, do I have a, a favorite among my children? And, and does my favoritism blind me to their moral failings? Um, is, is there an obvious difference between my children, which is only worsened by my choosing to have a favorite among them? Do I, um, do I try to get my needs met through my children? Can I, can I recognize my kids' failings and still, and still bless them? Are, are there faults and barriers and issues in my, in our family relationships that I've chosen to ignore? Gang, one of the things that I could say by way of application just here is that we all come from broken families. We are all products of dysfunctional families. It's just a matter of degree. Some of our families are more dysfunctional than the others, but we all come from dysfunctional homes. So let's stop all this talk about being a victim. We're all victims. I've got three kids, and boy, are they victims. You know, Susan, I've often wondered, when they're sitting in some kind of counselor's office, what are they going to say about us? My daddy, well, you should have seen him. He... What are they going to say about you? We're all victims of dysfunctional homes. So let's stop the talk and let's stop. Let's start talking. Let's start choosing like agents. That is, people who can do something about it. People in in, in view of our uh, dysfunctional home can make choices in light of righteousness that we read in this book, can make choices that will change it. All this talk about victims, it just makes you sour and bitter and self-absorbed. But um, then, of course, all of that, after having dealt with mom and daddy, that brings us to the center of the text, which is this contest between the two brothers, this heel-grabbing contest between Jacob and Esau. The text doesn't tell us whether, whether Jacob planned this thing or whether he just got lucky. But, but based on what I know about Jacob, I would suggest that he probably planned this. He schemed this. He set this thing up. He, he, um, he, he connived it in such a way that he had his brother set up for how long he had plotted. Again, we're not told, but I know that for years, 
he's been thinking about a, what a raw deal he had gotten by being born second. And it was only a matter of seconds. I mean, my goodness. Esau gets all the goodies, and, and I'm, I'm just seconds younger than he is. You know, it was as if there was a, there was a trophy, the, the birthright trophy that was uh, sitting there on the family mantle in the den. And a little brass plate on that trophy that said, this is Esau's. Jacob had heard on numerous occasions his daddy say to his, his favorite boy, son, one day all of this is going to be yours. And it drove him crazy. That is, drove Jacob crazy. And even worse, Esau really didn't value the thing. He didn't even care much about it. Everybody knew it was for sale. Everybody knew it was on the market. In fact, the text even tells us that he despised his birthright. You know, Esau is a, is a portrait of those folks who, whose physical appetites are far more important to them than any kind of spiritual privilege. Esau is a man who replaced the spiritual with the physical. He, he recognized the, the, the hunger that his body had, but he never was much in touch with the hunger that his soul had. Give me the now. I, I don't care much about the later. Folks, when you take away the, the prospect of some kind of eternality or eternal life from a human being, that human being begins to develop some very sordid characteristics. The, um, the typical, typical American is, is convinced that he can get all of his needs met in this world, in this life. And so the emphases of his life are things like ease and comfort and pleasure and self. We live for weekends. We live to find another party that we can go to. And it will make you awfully ugly. And it only increases your hunger, by the way. That's what Esau was. A man who knew a lot about the physical but knew nothing about the spiritual. The story of these two brothers is not a unique story. It's a story about the haves and the have-nots. Esau is, is one of those guys who, you know, just was seemed to be born right. He had it all, all going for him. We all seem to have somebody like that in our lives and not necessarily a, an older twin brother. But we all seem to have somebody in our life who is, is a whole lot like us, but better. You know, um, because we know of those folks in our lives, we end up living a life that's full of striving. We end up being eat up with envy, which turns us into hustlers or strivers, which is the only way we think that our needs are ever going to be met. If we can just grab that blessing, and it ain't working. You know, it's always surprised me. This, this, this really, I really marvel at this. And I think you know this. Did you know that the divorce rate 
among Christians is as high as, if not a tad higher than non-Christians. <laughs> All of our striving, it's just not working. You know, we have as many kids in trouble in the professing Christian world as those outside it. Our striving is just not working, gang. You know, we have as many complaints about people not being happy with their lives as the non-Christian world does. And the only solution that our church can offer us is just go out and try harder. Just like Jacob. You know, guys, in a lot of ways, we're a church full of Jacobs. We're a church, we've got pews that are packed with Jacobs. Who are convinced that the only way to make this life work is to, is to grab something that they've defined as the thing that's going to give it to them, whatever it is that they are so anxious to have. I want you to look again at the text because this is, this is brutal. Beginning at verse 27, the boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. <laughs> Gosh. Guys, um, the description of the two men there, the word that is, at least in my translation, describing Jacob as a quiet man, I don't know what the word is. The Hebrew word there is tam. It's a simple word that means uh, simple, dull, fragile. Jacob was a homeboy with really no personality who gets shoved around by his big brother. And, and, And on top of all that, my father likes my brother more than me. Ouch! There's not a whole lot of consolation in knowing that my mother likes me better than him. I mean, which one of those do you think he remembered? The fact that his mother liked him or the fact that his father didn't? I mean, these two boys grow up in separate worlds. Jacob grew up in a world where he, he always was in second place. He always didn't have what he thought would make him happy. And he didn't have any sense of approval by his own dadgum daddy. And so out of that comes a life of striving. Where did yours come from? You know, guys, we've all got different stories to tell. We've all got bruises and hurts and that make us into strivers, into hustlers. Where there's disappointments and rejections and divorces and job losses. And so we, we develop a strategy, a, a scheme, so that we can lay our hands on our own version of the birthright. We're going to get that. So at the ripe old age of 17, Jacob decides he's got to have the birthright. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get it. And so the fateful day arrives. And Esau comes stumbling in. He's set up. Esau comes stumbling in from the fields and he's, he's famished. By the way, guys. The the Hebrew word that's translated in some of your translations, weary or exhausted, 
That, that is a very poor choice of translations. The, the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says that the word is famished. And he's a Jew. I mean, Robert Alter is. But the point is, Esau comes in from the field famished. Um, have you ever heard that little line? I think it's from a nursery tale. It goes, it's, come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Have you ever heard that? Well, Esau, the fly, just wandered into the parlor of the spider, Jacob. And he's about to get gobbled. But the, the interesting thing about the story to me, guys, and I hope you'll, you'll listen to me. The interesting thing about this story is that Esau is not the only one in this story who is famished. So is Jacob. Esau wants something for his belly. But Jacob wants something that will make him feel important. Make him feel valuable. Something that would give meaning to his life. And he thinks that birthright is the thing that will do it. And we're going to find out later that it didn't. But that doesn't change things now. This is a story about two hungry men, ladies and gentlemen. Not just one. You've got one man who knows that his stomach is empty. But you've got another man who knows his soul is empty. He knows his life is empty. He knows that there's something that's missing that makes him, that would make him feel mm, valuable, important. So he's going to do whatever he has to do to get it. I, I want to show you just a little bit more because the, the Hebrew language here is so descriptive of this event. And you, you kind of miss it in the English translation. For instance, in verse 30. We're told that um, Esau stumbles in from the field and he said, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted, for I'm famished. Well, guys, in the Hebrew language, what you find there is Esau, who is inarticulate with hunger, and he can't even come up with the normal, ordinary word for stew. The, the Hebrew word is nazid for stew. But that's not what you find in the Hebrew. What, what you find there literally is the red red. He points to the pot and he grunts. Give me some of that red, red. Like, like, like some kind of caveman. And then the words, let me eat. The, the word that is translated there in the Hebrew, let me eat, is found one time in the Old Testament, right there. But it is found numerous times in the Talmud, which is a kind of a commentary on the Old Testament. But in the Talmud, the word that's translated there, let me eat, is a word that is, every time it appears in the Talmud, it is describing animals that are stuffing their mouths with food. You've got this caveman who stumbled into the tent of Jacob, and he's stuffing food in his mouth. And then, if you'll notice in verse 34, it says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread, little stew, and, and notice... And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. That rapid fire chain of verbs there. It's describing a guy who comes in all famished. He grabs some food. He stuffs it in his mouth. He does it in a hurry. He, he eats. He drinks. He grunts. And he storms out the door despising his birthright. The whole scene here is crude. It's coarse. It's ugly. It's rude. 
It's just not a very pretty event. But guys, you want to know something uglier than this scene? It's Jacob. Jacob who knows what he wants. And he's going to do what he has to do to get it. The uncivilized hunter is outfoxed by the mama's boy. And the, uh, his brother, who stays home with mama and watches the cooking channel, is, is more shrewd and more savvy and more, more advanced and sophisticated and calculating than, the, than Esau. And he's going to get what he's got to have, and he's going to use the blood soup to get it. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the extremes to which we will go to get what we have to have to satisfy that hunger that is in us. And I'm not talking about stew. It's like we're drowning. And we've got to get hold of the life vest and the and the life vest is, is a woman. I gotta have her. Or it's a job. I gotta get it. Or a house. Or a baby. I've gotta have it. Or I'm gonna die. Gang, listen to me. We all have a basic motivational drive. And, and, and I'm, I've come to believe that that basic motivational drive in most of us, if not all of us, is fear. A fear of, of, of not living up. A, a fear of, of, of missing out. A fear of wasting a life or a fear, it can be as specific as a fear of never being married. And we're driven people by fear. Because we got to have what it is that we define as our birthright. And we're going to stop at nothing until we have it. And all our church can do is give us, all they, all our church can do is make it worse. Because our church just tells us, you just need to try harder. Gang, the story about Jacob is an, is an interesting story. It's, it's interesting just on the surface of it. It's, it's, it's interesting in terms of just pure biographical information. It's interesting. But it's far more than biography. God is telling us something, guys. He's telling us about an inordinate hunger. Jacob is a type. 
He's a type of Israel. He's a type of the church of, the, of, of God. He's, the, he's, he's a type of the people of a God. He's a type of me. His life, Jacob's life, shows me things about my life. He shows me about the fears that I have that drive me into the ugly. My, my hungers that, that drive me to strategies that just don't work. And I end up a, a, a person that's eaten up with envy. And I'm happy when you're unhappy and I'm unhappy when you're happy. Because I want what you've got. Or, or I live a life of deceit. What falsehood do I have to live or to speak in the hopes that I can gain some kind of position and status before you? Or what gossip? What gossip do I enjoy hearing or sharing which, which brings my rival down to my size? You do know, don't you, that when you assault another human being, it's just a subtle form of self-exaltation. If I can cut him down or her down, then I can rise just a bit. It makes us ugly, guys. How critical have I become so that I can live with my own shortcomings? I enjoy hearing of other people's failings. Because when I hear about theirs, my own don't seem quite so large. Or... Where and how have I cheated so that I can keep more of my money so that I can spend it to buy things that will impress you? Why? Why do I do that? Because I'm hungry. Gang, when will we learn that we will never get rid of the hunger by trying harder? You never get rid of the dark side. It's not going to go away just because you got ahead. It'll still be with you. Still be with you. You know, this evening when you are um, watching the Rolling Stones at halftime, you just remember that they tried to tell us they can't get no satisfaction. And neither can you, apart from Jesus Christ. Now, don't mishear me here, guys. I'm not talking about heaven. I, I, I could say, it, yeah, without Jesus Christ, you're never going to go to heaven. That, that is true. But I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about this life. I'm talking about our appetites, our strivings, our hustlings, our cravings for recognition, our cravings for position and significance, the craving for a, a successful life. If I can only be a successful mom... And I want you to hear me. You're never going to be satisfied in your own privately concocted bowl of stew. 
Esau spent his life hunting and eating. And Jacob spent much of his life striving, hustling like us. Let me close like this. Two things. First of all, guys, to you who are here as not a Christian, if you're not a Christian here this morning, to the, to the not yet redeemed, to the not yet saved, to the not yet believing, come to Christ. Eat the blood soup. Lay hold of the Savior. But to the rest of us, to the people who are already purchased, to the already redeemed. Give it up. Give it up, guys. That pursuit that will never fill the belly of your soul, give it up. Guys, surely you know that, that all bread other than God's bread is going to be moldy. Surely you know that every well except God's well is going to ultimately run dry. So give it up. How do you do that? Let me mention five quick things. And we've got to hurry. But you, might, you might want to turn here, but you might want to save it till this afternoon. But I'm in Isaiah 30 and 31. Let me explain real quickly. I'm telling you, I'm, I want to mention five things that will help us give it up. That pursuit that won't fill the belly of our souls. That's what I'm doing right now. But I'm in Isaiah 30 and 31 because there's, there's, a, there's an image that's constantly found in the Old Testament about Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. Now, you know where Egypt was. That's where they came out of bondage. And Egypt was always the place. That, oh, well, if we could just go back there because they had such good things to eat and all those onions and leeks and, and all that stuff. I, well, I want to go back there. And God says to Israel in, in Isaiah 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. He says the same thing in chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Woe to you who go down to Egypt to try and get your needs met. Woe to the people of God who don't understand that Egypt will never meet our needs. Get out of Egypt. There's a word for it in verse 15. Chapter 30 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Guys, the first step is in returning. If you want another biblical word, it's called repentance. Remove whatever that thing is that's at the center of your being. Get it out of there. Get out of Egypt. Secondly, 
Here's a daily prayer request for you. You need to pray this daily. You go back to the Lord and you say, Lord, you feed me. Lord, bring me back to your table because all the rest of this bread that I got is moldy. It's dry as dust and I'm choking on it. Lord, smash the thing that I thought was going to make me happy. Smash it, kill it, take it away, expunge it, get it out. Pray that daily. Third, invest in righteousness. Your time and your money. Guys, spend your life with an eye on eternity. Stop trying to fill up your bucket with another thing. Devote your time, devote your resources, devote your money to something other than the physical. Has it really made you happy? I had a man, I have to tell you this real quick, but I, had, I was talking to a guy, and he's, he's a handsome, good-looking, achieving Really successful dude. Played football at one of the universities that we all know and love around here. But um, he said, we had a couple that called us and they asked us to go out to supper with them. And they wanted to go to Ruth's Chris. You been to Ruth's Chris? I mean, it's a hundred bucks without any wine. And um, it's, you know, it's a nice steak over there. And he said, you know what, Jimmy? I'm tired of nice meals. If that's all this is about, surely there's got to be something than heading back over and having a big steak. I don't think Esau knew that. I don't much think Isaac knew that, but we ought to. Invest your time. Invest your money in something other than the physical. Invest it in something of righteousness. Fourth, guys, corporate worship. You need this more than you think you do. Get in a grace group. You need to be among God's people. I've told you that my greatest fear in Amsterdam in about three weeks is that I'm going to be cut off from you. Guys, we underestimate the power of community to transform character. You need this. No, you don't need to hear Jimmy Young preach. Now, I'm not saying that. But you need to be among God's people in corporate worship. And then fifthly, eat. Eat Christ. Take this truth that you've heard this morning and take it into the center of your being and let it catch fire there. Reestablish Jesus Christ as the highest loyalty of your life. Guys, all bread But God's bread is moldy. And I 
think many of you already know that. So give it up. Our Father, I pray that your, your people will discover the beauty of um, righteous living, the beauty of leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit, the beauty of chasing after holy things, the beauty of a life given over, entrusted to the King of Kings. And I pray that you will remind us that all those aches and pains of our soul are there because we spent way too much time trying to get those needs met, eating the wrong stuff, going to the wrong place. It ain't in Egypt. Father, forgive us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, reestablish Jesus Christ as the center of our being, the highest loyalty of our lives. Do that, for Jesus' sake. Amen.